Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. Well, good morning, everybody. So the missions teams are back. Mm. Super excited about it. We're going to be doing all sorts of uh, updates and stories and things like that uh, from starting up out next week. And so you're not going to want to miss out on that. But if between now and then, if you get a chance to uh, speak to uh, one of the students that went on uh, one of our trips or one of the leaders, it would be well worth uh, a few minutes to hear what God has been doing in all of uh, their lives, uh, in part because of uh, your generosity, your sacrifice, but really uh, because uh, the kids here, the students here, the, and the leaders there were willing to uh, step out and uh, pursue God in uh, a very great, uh, very cool way. So uh, anyway, very, very exciting. Can we just give them a round of applause and say, you know, thank you guys so much. We are so excited to have you back and to hear the stories. Uh, and then if it went really, really well, we'll, we'll send you out again. Uh, and so uh, that'll, be, uh, that'll be great. So crying babies are like New Year's resolutions. This is, uh, this is actually what we were told some uh, years ago. So Cheryl and I were living in New Jersey. We had just finished our undergraduate in California. We were about to go to graduate school in uh, Chicago. And uh, we were at this attending, we were living with my parents, and we were attending this very cool little church with the sweetest pastor imaginable. It was not the Pope. That is a random picture. Uh, and so this, it was a great little, it was a little church. He was, and this pastor was super sweet, not like me or Trevor, but like Anne or Larry sweet, like really like pastoral, like super, super great. And, um, and a baby started crying during his message. And uh, that's when he said, babies, it, he, he said it there in in the church uh, with, with the crying baby there. Babies are like New Year's resolutions. They should be carried out as soon as possible. <laughs> I died a thousand deaths. And I think the mom, who was currently running to the back of the building, uh, probably died worse than that. So, uh, so you know, we started uh, Beacon. And uh, we decided that, you know, even the Pope can't stop a crying baby. And so if the Pope can't stop a crying baby, then we certainly have no hope to do it. And so it was decided that we would also restrict babies from uh, the worship service. In fact, if they were crying during the worship service, the ushers were instructed to suggest to the parents that they find another place uh, outside of the main room to worship, maybe our family room or here watch it in the lobby or something like that. And we did this for many years. And uh, plenty of people left the church because of it. They were just offended and hurt and embarrassed that an usher went and kind of tapped them on the shoulder while their baby was crying and said, hey, you know, why don't you leave? 
And, uh, and, so, uh, they, and so this was a problem. And so, so, so then, you know, so some friends from town had visited the church and they were asked to step out and go to a family room, which was the size of a closet in those days. And, uh, and it was full already of, of, uh, of, parent, of very noisy kids and parents. And so uh, they left. And they didn't come back for a long time. And then finally we said, you know, we got we to gotta reevaluate this whole position on uh, crying babies. And so uh, we changed it. We changed it. And uh, we were saying, all right, now, you know, now it is completely unlikely that we will ask anyone to leave the room, even if it sounds like their baby's toenails are slowly and systematically being pulled out. It does not matter. We're not gonna. We're gonna try our best not to say anything. And some of the old ushers had been the ushers that have been around a long time. They vibrate because they feel like you know they're supposed to do something. And we're like, no, stop it. You're not allowed to do anything anymore. And 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 so now we're at the street fair, and I meet a woman who said, yeah, I used to go to your church, but I stopped going. And and we were like, wow, what happened? You know, you didn't like it. She's like, well, you know, I had my kids there. They were making a noise and sounded like we should leave. And we just never went back because our kids weren't comfortable and I wasn't comfortable and I was embarrassed. And I was like, we've changed. We have been born again when it comes to this issue. You can come back and not worry about it. And so she did. And now she's on this great growth trajectory. Uh, and so it sounds like, hey, you know, we made the right decision. Except there have been other people that have come to Beacon and who have said, you know, it's not really for me because you guys are kind of like too casual about everything. You know, you've got like food and coffee and people dress like they're going to go to the beach and the pastor looks fake because he doesn't have any, he's not serious enough and the word of God isn't taken seriously enough and like inside people are laughing during a service or clapping and that can't happen so I'm not comfortable here so they leave and so you know back and forth we go what of course is the right thing to do some people want the babies out others want them to stay some people say it's distracting some say family should worship together some people say but I can't worship when the kids are screaming and others say it's more important to get the kids acclimated to church and back and forth and back and forth like a ping pong game it drives you crazy and we add all of these thou shouts and yours could be a positive it could be a negative thou shout what and fill it in and figure out what it is you want to divide over and what it is that makes you want to leave. And what it is that makes you say, that's it, that ain't for me, that community, that group, not for me. Thou shalt go ahead and fill it in. Have crying babies, have bagels, not have bagels, have used bagels, whatever it is that you think is going on, thou shalt. So what does the Bible actually say about crying kids in the sanctuary? No, like seriously, I'm asking you, what, give me a, a Bible, is there a Bible verse? Like, you know, because I can't find it because, you know, there's a, there's a way to proof text everything you want to if you try hard enough. And so throw out a verse and someone else will throw out another verse and then they'll say, yeah, but that's out of context. And the other one will say, well, yours is out of context and, and, and back and forth they go. And a lot of this kind of stuff was happening in the Corinthian church. What about talking in church? This is a big deal. Interrupting the preacher. You don't want to interrupt the preacher. Preachers get upset about this. A man named J.L. Went, uh, went into the cheese business in Chicago. He failed and went bankrupt. 
Hey, sir, what you talking over here? Hey, what you talking? I'm talking to you, sir. Thank you. God bless you. I'm preaching. He went into cheese business. He failed. He went bankrupt. It's already bad. He should have stopped there. You're probably the guy that needs to be at the altar tonight. I got another hour yet. At one point he stops and he's like, I love you, man. I'm like, really? You got a funny way of showing it. You call this poor guy out in front of this whole room? Don't interrupt the preacher. What proof text are we going to use? What are we going to dredge up in order to prove our pet position? That's a really excellent question for us. Here's what we do know. We do know that the writers of the Bible thought that whatever we do, we do so that the church will be built up, not torn down. Built up, not torn down. And this is what we have been studying now for many, many weeks in 1 Corinthians. How is it that we can love and serve each other in the family of God based on these key principles We do it in the way he described in 1 Corinthians 13, and we do it in a way that builds up and it doesn't tear down. And now we got to work it out as a community what those details look like. So today we're going to press forward into chapter 14, and this is going to be a little bit of a different message. Uh, We've been talking about some general principles in, uh, in these last few weeks, and we're going to highlight some of those today, but there are some very particular issues that are going on in this text that we're going to have to spend a little bit of extra time with that we have sort of skipped in uh, previous weeks. And so if you kind of like doctrine and theology, some of this stuff might be of particular interest. And if you can't stand that kind of stuff, then this might not be your favorite Sunday at Beacon, but here we go. So we, we, we started this series... We wanted to go kind of a verse-by-verse take so that we would be kind of forced to confront some of the more challenging texts and make it so that we'd have to talk about them together. And we thought that that would be fun, uh, which I don't exactly know. So we got to look at history, linguistics, culture, uh, but then we had to talk about food sacrifice to idols, and Trevor made me teach on that one. Then, you know, that was, that was, awful. That was like awful fun. Uh, then we explored different expectations on men and women uh, and head coverings in the church. That was, that was fun. Trevor made me talk on that one as well. Then we looked at how to rebuke each other, the gift of singleness, all sorts of vices and virtues. And we got to hear Cheryl say things about sex that I never thought I would hear in church. And so if you remember some of these, this is going back now a few months as we got to, to do this. And today we get to talk about tongues and spiritual gifts and women being silent in the church. So good times. Uh, Trevor made me teach on this one as well. And so I got to work on that whole back office system of deciding who does this because Trevor also decided he wasn't feeling well today. He's sick, apparently. And uh, he's not even showing up today when we get to talk about these. So, all right. Next week, he gets to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. Like, I get, I get women remain silent in the church. He gets the resurrection of Jesus. Like, this is, anyway, thank you, Trevor. I'm sure you're watching uh, online. Well, it's good to pursue spiritual gifts. This is what we saw. Throughout the the beginning of this section, uh, that goes back all the way to chapter 11, and the way he phrases it here in 14, he says, follow the way of love and eagerly 
desire gifts of the Spirit. And so we got to keep that as the, the forefront. You, you, he wants you to eagerly desire these things. Spiritual gifts, gifts that God gives to each and every follower of Jesus to be used in the work of the kingdom, eagerly desire them. Eagerly desire them. These are good. And spiritual gifts, they might be miraculous abilities, they might be natural abilities that God somehow supernaturally energizes when you become a Christian. Once you start trying to figure out exactly what some of these things are, it really does get sort of confusing. And that's an important point for us to kind of, kind of make as we get underway because, you know, it, if, if, I don't have any pastoral gifts. I know that's, that's not great to admit. Uh, but I, like on all the spiritual gift inventories, I never show up with like, pastoral gifts or mercy or compassion or anything like that, actually. Um, and so those of you who know me are like, no, that fits. Uh, and others are like, that doesn't seem right for a pastor. Anyway, the point is, I don't show up on those, those spiritual gift inventories. I have other gifts, administration and leadership and prophetic thing, not like prophecy, but like kind of discernment and uh, other gifts show up a little bit higher. So you would look at it and you might say, well, when Robert became a Christian, he received a spiritual gift. That's kind of the traditional way of thinking about these, the spiritual gift of, say, leadership. The only problem with that is I, I started showing leadership tendencies when I was like in third grade and tried to dominate the, the, the classroom environment. One teacher actually even said it. Robert continues to try to control the classroom environment. Uh, and, and so, which, you know, that was kind of like a bad thing. And my parents were like, hey, good work. Keep it up. And so, uh, you know, this is not great. And so, like, you know, so is it a natural ability or is it a spiritual gift? And so I would say, yes, it is a natural ability, even a personality that God might have put in you in, to, to create the preparatory ground for what he was going to energize in a new and spiritual way. He was going to take some of those things that could have been natural gifts and personality bent, and he could make them into something more uh, usable and powerful for the kingdom. They also, he also could just drop a brand new gift on you. It could be something quite unlike anything you have ever experienced, especially when we get to some of the, what they call the sign gifts, like healing or tongues or interpretation or even some wisdom and discernment kinds of, kinds of things. And so I believe that all of these gifts are still active for today. And so if you follow these arguments, that's a theological position we have. None of the gifts have ceased. They're still all active in God's church around the world and throughout history. The key here is that all of the gifts are given so that the church may be built up. And kind of read this. What then shall we say? Brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. So whatever we do with these gifts, we have to remember the end goal is to build up the church. That's why God did it. That's why God gave us these things. So it seems like in this day, Paul expected the Christians to sort of come together each week, not asking, what is it that I can get out of this? But what is it that I can bring to it? What is it that God has given to me? What is it, what resources, what, 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 uh, what, what faith, what service, what skill, what ability can I bring into this moment to build up the church? Almost the antithesis of our church shopping kind of a mentality. And I get it. Listen, I'm not, you know, 
we go shopping and in America we're great at this. Like, you know, this is kind of like, we, we're, it's built on a thousand choices for like the kinds of cereals you would eat. And so, you know, you, you, there's like 12 different kinds of Cheerios. Forget every other type of, of thing. And so what you do is you go to the store and you look and you're like, oh, this one helps me with my cholesterol. Well, this one does too, just in the other direction. And, you know, that's, so that's helpful. And, like, this one's kind of cool. It's got circles and it's plain. But this one has rainbows and, like, marshmallows. And so, you know, but this one it was cost more and this one costs less. And so you weigh it out and you try to figure out what does it give me that I need. Keep my kids moving in the morning. Help me feel better about eating sugar that says it lowers my cholesterol. What should I do? Which one? And so you go back and forth and you, back and you make a decision that is best for you. There's nothing wrong with that. We do have to look at a church situation and say, what works? And, and you know, this is going to work for me. It's going to work for my family. It's something I have to do. And so I'm not saying that, like, there's no role for that. It might have been the case in the first century when there was a church in your community or your city. That's just not our reality anymore. But... When we take that mentality and we make it a part of how we do church together, it goes horribly wrong. What is it that I can get out of this? What is it that's in it for me? And I'm not saying you shouldn't be getting things out of it. Don't, I'm, not, you know, I'm, not, I'm not going that so far down the road on that. What I'm saying is it seems as if they expected that every single person was gifted by God in a unique and an important way. And when you figure out what that is, you get to contribute that back to the broader community. You get to use your gifts in that way. I wonder how many gifts are withering because they're not being utilized and exercised the way God intended them to be. I wonder how many are latent, they're, they're, they're under the surface, they're kind of in the background, you don't even know they're really there, you haven't even stepped into them, but God has given it to you, he has made you that way, it's to be unwrapped and it's to be used for the building up of the saints. And when you do that, you experience a type of fulfillment and joy and purpose that transcends what you would expect because this was in the spirit realm. All right, so what about speaking in tongues? This is interesting because uh, the text has a lot to say about it, and everyone who comments on it disagrees on what any of these things mean and what they, how they should be used. Uh, and so I'll go through it quickly on a couple of points and just kind of highlight some things I think are important. Anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit, but the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. This is the key part that we have to remember in all of these conversations about gifts. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. And so here we hear the critique that Paul is making. You know, tongues is out there. It's a thing. Lots of people have, have benefited from it, but he's putting, he's, putting a rain, he's putting reins on it. He's trying to pull something back here in the context of the Corinthian church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. So he's not saying this is a bad thing. But I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets. Why? Well, we already know why. So that the church can be edified. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. This phrase here, my spirit prays, is sort of key in understanding the current manifestation of tongues in the broader Christian community as far as I can discern it. It seems as if in the book of Acts, 
these were known languages that someone who knew that language could hear and understand. The people were speaking a language that they did not understand. Somebody else did know what it meant because it was an actual language. People who manifest the gift today will often say, no, no, this is something different nowadays because it's their spirit praying and it doesn't seem like it is a known language. And so things get a little bit gray as we start moving into trying to understand this. But my mind is unfruitful, so what shall I do? I pray with my spirit, but I also pray with my understanding. I sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. And this is a key part where many people who practice the gift of tongues say, listen, it helps me in my own spiritual journey. It's part of my personal prayer life. And I would say, apparently, you have some precedent for that in Scripture, knowing full well that Paul is still pulling it back a little bit. Otherwise, when you're praising God in the Spirit, how can someone else who is not now in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving since they don't know what you're saying? You are giving thanks well enough, but no one is edified. And so you can got to get a sense as to what he's saying here. So is the gift of tongues available today? Yes, I think it is. It is still a spiritual gift for today. But what does it look like today? It seems to me like most of the manifestations of it that I'm familiar with are of a private prayer language that people use in order to enter into a different way of experiencing God beyond language with utterances or groaning that cannot be understood by the cognitive mind. Now, why wouldn't we use it at Beacon? Well, I think partly because of things like this. And I think this is, this is coming in the context of a church that was abusing the gift, wasn't using it correctly. And how we utilize it and what church is even like has changed since the first century. Who would have been in that room versus who would be in this room? These things have changed. And so it seems to me that it might very well be most manifestations an actual private prayer language. However, I am still skeptical because of my own experience. So after we had spent years in the Catholic Church, we left the Catholic Church and we were in Pentecostal churches for about a decade. And in those circles, the gift of tongues was used as evidence of what they called a second work of grace. So you became a follower of Jesus, you became a Christian, but later you were baptized in the Spirit. And when you were baptized in the Spirit, you got a second blessing of the Spirit, which kind of made you a real Christian. Like now you were like supercharged Christian. And as a supercharged Christian, and I'm not really exaggerating this in any way, as a supercharged Christian, you would speak in tongues. Now, as a high schooler, it was really important in the dating scene to be a supercharged Christian. Because if there was a cute youth group girl who was like a year or so ahead and she already spoke in tongues, her daddy wouldn't even let you be considered because you weren't filled with the Spirit. You weren't baptized. So, so it was a serious thing at our retreats and, and like conferences where we would teach the kids how to speak in tongues, which is what happened to me. I don't practice the gift of tongues anymore because I don't think I ever had the gift of tongues. I spoke in tongues because as a kid... Everyone I knew did, and it was the only way to be in the in crowd. 
And as I kind of grew past that, and I'm not, listen, I'm not criticizing, I'm not saying that all charismatic churches are like this and that all people who speak in tongues feel the same way about this. I am just telling you my own experience in it. And it just goes to the point again that Paul is saying, we've done something more with it than was intended. We've made it more. We've made it almost a mark of actually following Jesus. And I found that uh, disturbing as I began to study and learn a little bit more about it. In fact, the main, if you want to know Beacon's main uh, reason that we uh, say, if you want to use tongues in your own prayer life, that's great, but we don't do it here in the open assembly. It really comes from this passage. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. That's largely how we set our corporate worship policies. Now, also, by the way, when he does say that I'd like every one of you to speak, but would I would rather have you prophesy, you can't use this to say everybody ought to speak in tongues then because he actually has already said just a few chapters earlier that not everybody prophesies, not everybody speaks in tongues. And so he's saying, no, it'd be great. If you want to do that, you can do that. That's great. But he's just said a couple chapters earlier, not everybody's going to. Everyone has a different gift from God. He doesn't make us independent. He makes us interdependent by spreading the gifts around in different ways. All right. So when he speaks of prophecy, then it's helpful to know that for many of us, we look at prophecy and he even actually says it, right? I would rather you prophesy. We think of people who told the future, but not all prophecy was about telling the future. Some of it was simply proclaiming the truth. And prophecy, I think it seems to me that the gift of prophecy still moves in those same veins. That sometimes it is foretelling the future and sometimes it is foretelling the truth. And so if you're a Kids Quest teacher, well, you shouldn't be hearing this because you should be back with the kids. Um, no, maybe you're not. Maybe you're not on your shift right now. But uh, it, it, if you're a if you're a kids quest teacher, or if you're a if you're leading a discipleship group or a small group, and you are presenting the truth of God, there's a sense in which you are forthtelling the truth. You're telling the truth. You're making it known. You're helping people understand it so that they become edified. And we're starting to move into what could be a gift of prophecy. And then at other times, it seems to manifest in a way that is a little bit more supernatural and a little bit more what we would look at as miraculous. Even though, of course, from God's perspective, it isn't any different in his skill set between the miraculous-looking sign gifts and those that aren't. What is it that we learn kind of overall when it comes to this? Again, since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. That's the key. Then he goes on to tell us that we have to keep God at the center of our worship. And uh, this is kind of a, it, it's a section here that's going to be really important also in a, in, a, in a minute as we talk about another topic. But he says, what shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done that so the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, now he's giving us some rules as to how to actually use these, these gifts. Two, or at most three, should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet 
in the church and speak to himself and to God. Again, more of the idea of a private prayer language showing up here. The speaker should keep quiet. Let's keep that one in mind for a minute. Two or three prophets should speak. So he talked to the, the tongues people. Now he's talking to the prophets. The other should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should keep quiet. For you can call all, you can all, for you all, you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. We were at a church some years ago where a group of folks had started visiting who wanted to worship with flags. And so some of you might remember this, it was like a little blip in, in church life for a while. It wasn't like a coordinated flag thing where like you went and you rehearsed and you got really good at flags. You would just show up on a Sunday morning, often at a church that didn't worship like this, and you would just start waving a flag, which made it hard to read the overhead projector, uh, which is what we used back then. And so people would just start waving flags or other people would, would show up and they would start dancing up in the front and churches have to decide how they're going to express their worship. But it seems to me that when a person comes and tries to decide for a church how they're going to express their worship, it feels laced with arrogance to me. It feels like we're overstepping and we're saying, listen, I'm going to add disorder to this worshiping community, which to me feels like someone that might be clamoring for the focus of the worship. I think that's a risk for us. Now, all of this now applies. Crying kids, kids in worship, family service, kids for communion. How do we handle it? What do we do when there are disruptions? How do we handle these things? We have to take this principle and understand that we're weighing it against other values that the scripture gives us. Now, as soon as you get into a situation like this, when you have these other values, the value of love and acceptance and receiving people and making them feel loved and recognized versus order, now you start to add cultural influences. What's orderly in one context, in one culture, might not be considered orderly in another, which means churches are going to make different decisions on these things. And that's okay. That's good. It gives us all sorts of different ways that the Spirit now can manifest the worship of God. But it often seems that for us, we take a position, we lock down on things, we demand that it is the right way, and as followers of Christ, I think we need more humility in these conversations. You want to know something about how we can, what kind of a criteria? He's a God of peace, not of disorder. But keeping God at the center of the worship has to be key. We had one experience one time where a guy would, would come and he was doing the serious business with God and he would weep during the worship service. And the first you know, week, it was like, wow, this is amazing. He came in and he's doing it. And then the second week, it was happening. The third week, and then he started moving further up into the room. And so largely during worship, he would start wailing here, not here in this building, it was the other, it's much, much smaller building, so the wailing was like even crazy loud for everyone. And I was like, wow, this guy's doing some real business with God. No one else is. 
because we're all like, can someone help that guy? He's like dying up there, it seems like. And so just wailing. And so what do you do in these cases? Prayerfully, carefully weigh out these values and try to, try to make certain that we keep God as the central focus of our worship. I was asked as an usher years ago in California to ask a guy who was hiccuping to leave the room. It was a room of a thousand people. He took a seat up front. He hiccuped every 30 seconds with this high-pitched hiccup. And the head usher made me, a kid, ask him to leave. I should have just walked out. I should have been like, your problem, not mine. I'm not asking the chronic hiccuper to leave the church. What do we do in a situation like that? In that church culture, they had a, they had a, a sense as to what they needed to do, and they needed an usher who was willing to go there and offer the guy a, a bottle of water, because that's all I was able to pull off. <laughs> I just stuck up, handed a bottle of water, and then I left. That's all I could do. All right, so now we got to talk about this very controversial verse. Women remain silent in the church. Oh, it looks like I am out of time. Sorry, Trev. You're going to have to pick this up another, another week. Um, the, 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 this, this is actually one of the most controversial texts that are, that are in the scriptures. And so women should remain silent. We should all read this together. No, no, I'm not going to. Women should remain silent. We couldn't actually read it all together if it were. Anyway, so in the churches, they are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. So it seems pretty straightforward to me. I would ask for opinions and feedback, but only half of you could give it to me. Uh, it's certainly the worst kind of mansplaining going on here, it sounds like. Um, but fortunately, it's actually obvious from the context that Paul is talking about something else. And it's a little bit surprising just how readily we all gravitate to the absolute worst and hardest and most divisive interpretation of this considering it is in the ring composition surrounding the chapter on love. In fact, if we go back to chapter 11, grammatically, you'll remember this from the last couple of weeks, chapter 11 and chapter 14 both talk about men and women in the church and how they ought to conduct themselves. Except in chapter 11, he talks about the women and the men who are prophesying in the church. He's already established for us throughout the rest of his letters and in this section of this letter and later in this letter that women do speak in church. In fact, they lead within the constructs of the local church. So what is he talking about here? How could he, is he such an idiot that he would contradict himself a few verses later? No. The immediate context has to set the overall interpretation of this very admittedly difficult sounding verse. So clearly, he isn't forbidding women to speak in church. So, not, and by the way, everyone who even says he is, they all make exceptions in a dozen different ways. No one apply, or almost no one, applies this in a completely straightforward fashion. But there's another part of the context that matters. The same word here for women keep silent is the same word he used for the prophets that we read a minute ago, and the same one he uses for the people speaking in tongues. 
So when he said, those who are speaking in tongues, two or three should speak and then they should be silent, that's the same word he uses here. When he says, the prophet should speak, one or two speak, and then they, if, if another guy wants to say something, that guy should be silent, same word here. But the tongue speaker and the prophecy guy are already speaking in church. But this is the only one we apply as directly as that. Same word, right through it. It's as if Paul is really saying to us, guys, listen, God is a God of order. I've already said that to you. So here's the deal. You got people speaking in tongues. People are popping up here, saying whatever they want. It's chaotic. No one can even understand what's going on. You need to chill out. You need to do it in an orderly fashion. If this guy starts, you sit down, be quiet. And by the way, you prophecy people, it's a great gift, very cool, love it, have it, want it. When another prophet starts speaking, be quiet. Stop it. You're, you're not doing anyone any good by constantly talking over each other. And listen, ladies, you got to stop with the chatting. It's too much. It's too much. You got to stop. You're just talking over everyone. You got to stop doing that. You're literally talking over women who are prophesying, speaking in tongues, and leading the church service. You got to stop that. Now, when I first heard this as an explanation for the text, I was like, well, that's convenient. You know, it, that's a, that seems like a bit of a slippery way to get out of a very hard text. And then I started reading some people who are very, very familiar with the Middle East culture in history and even today. And they actually turn around and say, no, 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 no. This is actually in an illiterate society where most of the women, Greek would be their second or third language in a culture where they process things by, by talking about them, not by sitting quietly with our hands folded, but by actually interacting and engaging, it's disruptive. He actually told a story, one of these, these scholars I was reading, where he said the as soon as he would start to teach, and he was expected to teach for an hour, that the side of the room where the women were sitting, because in that culture they separated the men and the women in two sides of the church. Of course, the women had, had the kids, by the way. You should have expected that, right? He said if after like a minute of teaching, it would start to break out in rumblings over here on the side of the women. This is not a condescending comment. It's a cultural recognition. They literally are ESL, well, GSL, Greek as a second language, or Greek as a third language. And so sometimes, you know, most of the time, I guess, when I'm talking, anyone who's ESL, they don't know what I'm really saying. I was educated in New Jersey. I barely speak English. And so if you're ESL, it's like you're like, you, you constantly want to lean over to someone that actually knows a little bit more and say, like, what was he saying? What was that joke? What was that cultural reference? I don't get it. And he says this is still going on today in villages where education, especially for women, is very, very low. As a guy who had spent decades in Egypt and in Jerusalem and in Cyprus. He said, this is, anyone from that culture knows exactly what it is. He said he was literally in a church service where three times one of the elders had to stand up and say, women, please, you guys got to, you got to quiet it down a little bit. We can't, we can't hear. No microphone, no amplification. It felt to me at one point like a slippery way to get out of it. I am now more convinced than ever that it makes perfect sense 
considering the context. A couple of the harder parts where he says something like, you know, it's disgraceful. That's a word here for shame. And if you're in a shame and honor culture, you know, for us as Americans, this idea that it's disgraceful, that's a harsh thing to say. If you're in a shame and honor culture, you're much more used to this kind of language. And you realize it could be used for very serious things. And it could be used because you embarrass the family by not wearing the appropriate shirt to dinner. And so the idea that you've shamed the family, it's as if, again, Paul is saying to them, listen, you guys are chit-chatting, you're over-talking, you tongue speakers, same thing. You're embarrassing yourselves. People come in, they see this, this is the way Christians are supposed to interact. No, we're trying to put God at the center of this thing. You prophecy people, stop it. You guys have to understand that the application of love in the worship service is, is dominant here. That's what we have to work on. So anyway, the idea of it being shameful is simply not as uh, significant as uh, it first reads when uh, we're letting it hit our ears. Uh, he also says, ask your own husbands that, you know, when they get home, you know, husbands actually interacted far more in the Greek language than the wives would have. Most all of the women would have been married already or they would be like really girls before they got married. And so he's largely saying to all of the women, which was mostly going to be either married women and maybe some widows in their midst, if you don't understand what was being said, if you don't get it, I understand it. Greek, you're not, you're not great at Greek. You speak Aramaic. The teachers here are all talking in Greek. Your husbands do know more Greek because they work in the industries more and they work and they interact with more Greek speakers. Just ask them then. Don't keep chit-chatting. You're just disrupting everything. So... That is my take on women being silent in the church, which is good because we were starting to plan at the beginning of the week that next week I would be leading all the songs. And uh, we felt like that might not be a great uh, thing for us as a church. That would be one of the most unloving things that we could actually do. So what is it that we can do to build up the church? Use your gifts to build up the church. In all of these issues, whenever things get a little bit difficult and they get a little challenging and the texts are sometimes a little bit hard, we let love dominate the conversation and we seek to put God back as the central focus of every single thing we do. We lift him up and we build each other up by the exercise of our gifts. And that's how we keep Jesus at the center of our worship life here as a community of, of faith, minimizing the things that pull away from him, maximizing the opportunities for people to continue to build up the community of faith in such a way that we can represent him well in this world. Let's pray. Lord, what we're looking at here is we take a look at a text like this, and sometimes these can be difficult or contentious, which of course we know is ironic because Paul's literally talking about us being contentious and argumentative in this whole section. And we use these very verses to become argumentative and contentious. And the irony is not lost on us. And we just ask for your grace and for your forgiveness. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to navigate these competing values that every church has to face. And you help us, Lord, to figure out in, that, in those moments of tension and difficulty that will inevitably arise between us, we're asking, Lord, that you would do that work in the midst of it that would make us more like Jesus. That we would be knocking off the rough edges 
of each other, that we would be holding each other accountable, that we would be showing a reckless kind of love. And I pray, Father, for each person that they would feel the power of the Spirit and be compelled to pursue, eagerly desire gifts from your hand, gifts that you joyfully and generously give so that we might find meaning and purpose as we use those gifts from your hand to do your great work and to build up the body of Christ, our brothers and our sisters, so that we might represent you to a world that so desperately needs your love. We ask for this knowing that you can do exceedingly abundantly more than we ever hoped or imagined. And God's people said, amen. If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus, or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.